0: have been it's 10 right now and i've been repeatedly uh reminded that illinois is playing their game at eleven ten. um and i get that and, and it's important but here's what i'll say um michigan state is playing their game at four forty-five, 45 and will for sure be done by then All right, so no no you don't have to worry about four forty-five for sure no no i, I i'm kidding this I'm going to try to get you out because there's a much better chance that Illinois is going to win their game than Michigan State's going to win its game. So um, I want you to at least, you know, if we can plan to root for each other, then you can at least have one victory to celebrate today. So um, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, hey, before we before we do that, actually, um, this is, I, I just kind of want to give you a heads up I, again. I, I said this last week. This is a dark story we're looking at today. Um, and, and it's one of those stories that occasionally you come across in scripture and you're like, ah, eh, maybe, we'll, you know, just kind of brief pastor or whatever and not do it. But I think, I think it's important to do because it teaches us some value, valuable lessons, but uh, it's a dark story. So I just kind of want to prepare you today. You might feel a little bit different, but, but that's okay too. So uh, let's pray together and then we'll get into it. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And uh, we thank you that uh, even in a, in a dark story like the one we're going to look at today, uh, you are the light of the world and in you, we can, we can see light. And uh, that, that is an amazing thing. So I just pray that uh, in the midst of uh, the darkness of the story that we would see you and your light and we would determine that there is a better and different way to live. So we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It was uh, John Maxwell was the first person I think that I ever heard say about leadership. That leadership at, at its most basic level, leadership at its core is influence. Right, and, and that's really true. Leadership is influence. And it's really interesting when you kind of examine our world, uh, how people arrive at a position and place of influence. Some people arrive to it positionally. that, that they, They've uh, realized their influence and their leadership uh, through their position. In other words, they're hired to do a job. They're selected to sit on the board. They're the one running their, their company. And they're not particularly likable. Uh, you'd never want to go out and have lunch with them. And in some cases, you wouldn't grab dinner or a, after work. But they have influence because they sit in the influence chair, right? They're the leader. And, and so they have influence. Some people, it's fiscal. It's fiscal influence. And this is a person who has a ton of control in your company or your organization because of the money that they have in the organization. They might own the company or they have a controlling interest in the company. And they have influence because they have the dollars that say, I have influence, Right? For some, it's relational, and this is, uh, uh, John Maxwell would say this is the most powerful type of, of influence. It's relational influence that um, you love someone, they love you, you trust each other, you're in each other's lives, and they have influence over you and you have influence over them because of the relationship that you have. Uh, and then there's spiritual influence. That, this is where uh, organizations like ours kind of thrive. It's, man, you see a person and you go, man, that person clearly prays a lot or that person looks a lot like Jesus, or I see them sacrifice and serve, and you allow them to have influence over your life uh, because of the spiritual maturity that they have. There's all kinds of ways to have and gain influence, and we're all doing it. We're all trying to gain influence uh, in some area of our life, but here's the other truth. We're also all under the influence of someone or something. We're all being influenced, and I think it would be super naive and silly to act like we're not, right? We're all under the influence of someone, and this is what Genesis chapter 34 uh, is about. At the heart of it, this story is about coming under the wrong Influence Now, like I said in the intro, the backdrop of this story is a really tragic event. We're going to see that in a minute. But as the story unfolds, we're going to see the various people in this story. They are all under the influence of someone or something, and none of it's particularly healthy. And so there's a lot of stories that we preach on where we're like, be like this. Do this. Today's not one of those days. <laughs> right? Today's not one of those days. Today's one of those days where we're going to look at a story and we're going to be like, don't be like this. <laughs> Don't do this, all right? Be better, be like Jesus, right? That sort of thing. That's today's message. And uh, this is a really long text I'm about to read to you. That The good news is it's provocative, right? <laughs> and uh, it, it reads like a story. And I think you're going to find it a, a really interesting read. Uh, the, the backdrop of it is, is tragedy. But let me just kind of read the whole story. It's going to take me about five minutes to do it, which is a long time to just stand here and read. But if you'll stick with me, I think we can learn some things from this story. All right, Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter uh, Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. They're just kind of returning to the promised land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. This is all like very messed up, obviously. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, "Get get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk to Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields. As soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not have been done. But Hamar said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask Make the price uh, for the bride and the gift I am, uh, I am to bring as, a, as great as you like. I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceit, deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we cannot do such a thing. We cannot give you our sister to a man. We can't give our sister to a man who has not been circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. What now? Right? Um, (laughs) Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamar. What? going on with this guy, right? Uh, sounds good. What? Right. right. Their proposal seemed good to Hamar and his son Shechem. The young man who was the most honored of all his father's family lost no time in doing what they said. Sign me up first, right? Because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamar and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in, it, trade, uh, trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters, they can marry ours, but the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that, the, that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours? Let's agree to their terms and they'll settle among us. All the men went out to the city gate and agreed with Hamar and his son Shechem. Every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> weird thing to include, but all right, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamar and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else that was theirs in the city out in the fields. They carried off their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in the land. We are few in number. What if they join forces against me and attack me? I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should we have treated our sister like a prostitute? So, aren't you glad you're not preaching on this? All right. So the backdrop of the story is an incredibly tragic event. It's power unfairly wielding their power and control to do whatever they want. That's part of what this story is. The story is about a leader under the influence, a leader who's out of control, a leader under the influence of lust and power. In the case of this story, at the very beginning with Shechem's, Haman's son Shechem, at the very beginning of this story, it's a story of sexual assault, and sexual abuse, and it probably sounds familiar because we have been inundated with these stories over the last few years. A politician reaches these heights of great power. A comedian reaches this place of fame. An actor comes to a place where they are a social media influencer. And how do they use their power? How do they use their influence? How do they use their control? You've heard the stories. They're not far off from this story. They assault, they hurt, and they harm. And it's a reminder that a lot of us, a lot of people in our culture, we crave influence and we crave power and we crave control. That's just kind of a cultural thing in the United States. Whenever we achieve influence and power and control, this story is a reminder to us that we want to wield it well. Like I said, we live in a culture, a culture that just kind of craves it. And it's not necessarily at a national level. Sometimes it's like, man, I'd like more authority and to be in charge of my office. Or I'd like to be no, known in my line of work. I'd like to be promoted and have more authority. Sometimes it's as simple as that. But have you ever thought about, and I think it's important that we do, if you were given more power, if you were given more control, if you were given more influence, How would you wield it? Would you wield it well? Would it be good for you to have it? I'm reminded of the words of Jesus one time time on the screen for you. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Some people use their power and their influence to lord. And a lot of people do that. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? It's a high call on our life. That God, whatever authority you give me, whatever influence you give me, whatever control that you give me, I am going to use that to serve more people. I'm going to use that to love more people. I'm going to use that to lay my life down just like Jesus laid his life down. What a great calling on our life. What a great life mission. And obviously, that did not exist in this story. Power was achieved, control was achieved, wealth was achieved, and it was wielded and it was used to hurt and harm and destroy. And it's so wrong. And as Jesus says to you and I, not so with you. God and his grace might give you power. God and his grace might give you control. God and his grace might give you influence. You use that power and that influence to serve, not to harm. Not to lord it over, but to serve others, just like your Savior did for all of us. Now, I think to understand this story, the rest of the story, and the influence that we're going to talk about, you have to understand the role of circumcision in the story of Genesis. Remember, it goes all the way back to Abraham. And this was a sign that God gave his people And said, he said to Abraham, listen I am calling you and you're going to become a nation And this circumcision Will be a sign between our relationship It's a sign that I am your Lord And you are my people And it's a sign of our relationship And how I love you and you follow me It is a sign of deep faith It was tied to their relationship And as the story unfolds Hamar and Shechem They see an opportunity With circumcision they see a way that can lead them to increased power and increased wealth and increased control. You see that in the story. They see what, well, you know what they see? They see a business opportunity. And this isn't their faith at all. It's the faith of the people that they have come in contact with. And say, man, If we join up through circumcision, I get it's a high price, right? But if we join up through circumcision, we can gain influence and power and control We can do all of that, and they are under the influence of greed. They're under the influence of greed. And it happens sometimes, doesn't it, where someone sees faith, and they're like, I think I can gain some power using faith. I think I can gain some influence. I think I can gain some wealth if I just will use faith. It happens politically. You may have recently seen Putin. Quoting Jesus, quoting the Bible, to justify his attacks on Ukraine. So this happens literally all the time that people are like, "Man, if I can kind of manipulate and use faith, I can gain power politically." Be wary of politicians that might see your faith and use your faith and, and as a voting block. That might see the faithful as a way to gain votes to keep their power. Listen, what I'm about to say is going to sound very cynical. I really don't mean it that way. I'm actually not that cynical of a person. I've had the opportunity to know several different politicians over the course of my years. I've got a family member that's a politician and they have true and authentic faith. Their faith was not a trick. It wasn't a scam. They weren't trying to gain votes using their faith. It is, true, it is, it is truly what they believe. But we know that's not always the case, right? Some politicians see faith as an opportunity to capture a huge voting block of people to secure their power and their wealth. Have you ever found yourself being really jazzed about a politician? You're like, I like what they're saying. And you vote for them only to realize later that they really weren't who they said they were. Anybody ever experienced that before, right? (laughs) Once or twice, right? And let me say, there's not any really good way to avoid this. I think what we want to look for in all areas of our life is alignment between what they say and what they do. They say church is really, really important to them. Is there alignment? Do they go to church? They say family is really important to them. Is there alignment? Is their family important to them? They say generosity is a core value. Is there alignment to the best of our uh, ability? And I think we want to be aware of this in our life as well. It's easy to say, oh man, politics... Uh, it has gone to the dogs. It is the worst path a- a- around. But you know what Jesus said one time? Remove the plank in your own eye before you remove the speck from theirs. So I think it's easy to say, man, is there alignment in their life in the, in the political landscape? Is there alignment? The tougher question is, is there alignment in my life? They might use faith for political power, but do I use faith? Because that's how I want to be seen and perceived in my family. It's how I've kept the ear of my boss who happens to be a Christian. I like having a security blanket if something were to happen to me. What is influencing my decision? Is there alignment in my life between what I say and what I do? Do I have authentic faith? I think self-reflection is probably a better use of our time than being frustrated politically. My wife doesn't particularly enjoy political shows. She's better off for it. Um, I kind of do, but because she doesn't really enjoy it, I, I kinda, she, she was out one day and I said, oh, I'm going to turn on the network and I'm just going to watch. I was so discouraged by the end of 45 minutes, uh, discouraged and upset and you know, angry and all of that stuff. So I think a much better use of our time is self-reflection than being frustrated politically because I can change me. I can't change them. And if they're not genuine, that's between them and God. And just like if I'm not genuine, that's between me and God. So self-reflection is a much better use of our time. And I think part of our frustration is that we have bought into a lie uh, that that politics and power will advance the cause of Christ. So we bought into a lie that if we get the right and powerful people, they will move things forward. And listen, it's not that it can't happen. It could. Historically, it hasn't. It, you just need to understand that. Historically, that's not how the cause of Christ has been advanced. Power has a way of being corrupted. It just does. And as we've, as we've seen in this story that we just read, the cause has advanced. The cause of Christ has advanced through grassroots. It's people like you and me loving our neighbor. It's people like you and me loving our families. It's people like you and me sharing Jesus with the people around us. That The people, a people who come under the influence of Jesus will change the world. We don't need powerful leaders. We have Christ, the most powerful leader of all. So we don't need powerful leaders in Washington. We need people like you and people like me living in a neighborhood in Decatur, Illinois, willing to love their neighbor willing to love their Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, willing to serve, willing to give, willing to to be a part of the change that we so desperately want to see. That's how the cause of Christ is advanced. So what happens in politics that people kind of see faith as an opportunity to manipulate? Can I tell you something? It also happens through commerce, right? Be wary of companies that view faith as a buying pool to sell products, Right? And I get that. I think the political thing is really more important because politicians are making decisions through their power that affect more and more people. Through commerce, we might end up buying a product, a book, or a song, or seeing a movie, and that we thought was because the person loved Christ and they were trying to advance His cause. And later on down the road, we read a story and discover it was really just a lot more simple than that. It was about making money. They were under the influence of greed, and they're using faith to sell products, but I want to just remind you if, in case I've totally discouraged you, right? And maybe I have, and I'm sorry, that really was not my intent. I want to show you what Jesus says to encourage you. Uh, Paul, excuse me, Philippians one. It is true that some preach, uh, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So I said, this has been going on forever. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Here's Paul. you got to love Paul. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of that, I rejoice. So Paul says when it comes to commerce, commerce is a little bit different. I think when it comes to politics, before we get too amped up politically, we want to engage in self-reflection. He says, when it comes to commerce and people peddling products uh, to the masses that are based on faith, he says, the question becomes a little bit different. And here's the question. Is it true? Is what they're saying true? Their motives really don't matter that much to you and to me. Is what they're saying true? Is Christ lifted up? Is the gospel proclaimed? If it's true, it's worth rejoicing in. Because the truth is always worth rejoicing in. So it's a different question. So the Shechemites see an opportunity to use faith and circumcision. They see an opportunity, like, man, if we just go through this surgical procedure, we can gain power and influence and wealth, and it happens all the time. Jacob's sons use that faith to trick the Shechemites and advance their own sinful actions. So while the Shechemites are under the control of greed... Jacob's sons, up on the screen for you, are under the influence of anger. So we got people that are under the influence of lust and power, people under the influence of greed, and Jacob's sons, they are under the influence of anger. And they use circumcision, one of the most sacred kind of moments in their nation's history when it comes to their faith. They use circumcision, the sign of their relationship with God, to unleash their anger and thirst for vengeance. And listen, this is really hard because sometimes what we're angry about not always but sometimes what we're angry about it's something that God agrees is wrong they lied to me and i'm mad they stole from me and i'm mad they spread gossip about me and i'm mad and so often our anger it, it, it's justifiable we're, we're angry and it's justifiable and let me be honest when you read that story they have a right to be angry don't they When you read read that story, if that happened to your family, you'd be angry too. What happened to Dinah was despicable. And it was despicable in our culture, but if you go back 6,000 years, spoiler alert, it was despicable in theirs. So it's not like all of a sudden we became evolved and we're like, oh, this is wrong. No, it was wrong then too. In a different culture, it was still wrong. She was used and she was abused by power and it's wrong. But this is a story about what can go wrong in us when we nurse our anger and we stoke our anger and we allow it to simmer and fester and grow when we're under the influence of it. We'll use anything. When we're under the influence of anger, we'll use anything, even our faith, to justify what we want to do. It's what anger does. Let me show you what happens. We'll reread this part of the story. Verse 25. Three days later, later, while they were all still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city. Look at this. Killing every male. They put Hamar and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and they looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and everything else of theirs in the city uh, and out in the fields. They carried off all of their wealth and all of their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. In their anger, they go way beyond. They kill, they steal, destroy, they take slaves, people that were not even involved. And here's the lesson. As human beings, we're pretty bad at retribution. We just are. We're pretty bad at at payback. We're pretty bad at justice as individuals. This is why God's advice to us when it comes to payback and retribution and, and justice as individuals, God's advice to us on the Sermon on the Mount is, hey, in your personal life, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. His ongoing advice to us, and when it comes to government, submit to the governing authorities that God has ordained to enact corporate justice. And if they fail to do the job that God has called them to do, then God's further advice to us is trust him because he is a God of justice. Right. So when government fails or or the governing body fails to enact the justice we think they should, we don't go Lone Ranger. We trust our God. We respect his justice enough to know that he's got it handled. And it's super, super hard to do that. But it's what we're called to. My individual mandate is to love my enemies. My individual mandate, our individual mandate as a body of believers is love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. God has enacted a government who oversees corporal justice, and God himself is a God of justice over government to pick up wherever they fail and and drop the ball. And we are called to trust in him. Here's how I would say it. As followers of Jesus, we don't allow anger to drive the car. It would be like, I have a 10-year-old son. And every once in a while, we're kind of sitting around home on a Saturday, and Cheryl will ask the boys if we would run some errands. And we always say yes, we'd love to run errands. So yeah, we'll run run to the store, we'll run some errands. It would be like me walking out of the house with my 10-year-old son and say, hey, let's go run these errands. And while Cheryl's still in earshot, me saying, hey, Sam, do you want to drive to the store? And I promise you, she's going to follow us out to the driveway, and she's going to be, what on earth are you thinking? He's not old enough. He's not mature enough. He can't even see out the windshield yet. He doesn't know how to drive yet. He's going to do something unwise, silly, and stupid. What are you thinking? Anger is not supposed to be driving the car. Anger is going to do something unwise. Anger is going to do something unkind. Anger is going to do something silly. We don't allow anger to drive the car. We allow Jesus to drive the car. His teachings, his example, and his life. He is supposed to be driving the car, and we are under his influence. We're not under the influence of greed. We're not under the influence of power. We're not under the influence of lust. All of these people got it wrong in this story. We are under the influence of Jesus, and we allow him to drive the car. So that's why when he says something like, love your enemies, and we're like, I really don't feel like doing that. Kind of want to get my sword and go on a justice spree, right? He's like, no, no, no. Not your call, not your decision. I'm driving the car and I'm telling you what you need to do is love your enemies. Here's what's true sometimes. We use our faith to nurse our anger, but we don't use our faith to nurse grace. Here's what I mean by that. When we're angry, our faith, because we're faithful, nice Christian people, we use our faith to go to the Bible and find verses that prove that we're right and they're wrong. We go and find verses that justify our anger and justify our frustration and justify our actions. And we use our faith to nurse our anger. Can I tell you something in love? I know I'm way past preaching right now and I'm meddling and that's okay. Um, The Bible wasn't written to prove your point. The Bible was written to prove God's point. right. God didn't write this, his word out so you could use it to prove your point. God laid it out so God could, prove, God could prove his point. And so search for verses about grace and kindness and forgiveness. Nurse grace. Don't just nurse your anger. Nurse grace and you will be amazed what happens. We're, what are we under the influence of right now? Is it greed? We just want more power or control in our life? Anger, lust, what, is, what are we under the influence of? I want to encourage us, let's be under the influence of Jesus. He's good, he's wise, he's all-knowing, he knows what we need, he knows what we need to do, and we just need to listen to him and give him the, car, the keys to the car and say, you're, you're, I'm going to let you drive. And I'm going to trust you. Anger's done driving, greed's done, uh, it's all done. I'm going to hand, it's like letting a 10-year-old drive. It's like letting my, some of you know my son, Sam. Let's go out after church and you let him drive your car. (laughs) Like I was born in the morning. It wasn't yesterday morning, right? I'm not doing that, right? Because he can't do that. He shouldn't be behind the wheel. He's 10. And the same is true for these things. Do not let anger drive your car. Let Jesus drive your car. Do not let greed drive your car. Let Jesus drive your life, his teachings, his example, and his influence. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And right now, as we're getting ready to receive communion together, this is a time in our service where we can just kind of come back under his influence if we've strayed. So right now we want to do that. If we kind of examine the last week and say, man, this last week, I've been really angry. I've been really angry this week where I've been really kind of power-controlling this week, power-consumed and controlling this week. In your grace, you invite us back every single time. So right now, as we receive communion and remember uh, your death and your burial and your resurrection, we are reminded today that our sins are forgiven in you and that we are welcomed back uh, to come to you uh, every single time. So right now, we return to you. We want to be under your influence. Anger always takes us further than we wanted to go and do more than we intended to do. We see it in this story. And it's a big kind of crazy example, but on a micro level, we've all experienced this. It's like, man, in my anger, I, I was more harsh than I intended to be. I was more angry than I intended to be. Forgive us of our sins. And right now, as we receive communion, we want to hand the keys back to you and say, will you drive? Will you drive? Point to me where you want me to go. Show me through your example what you want me to be. And help me to live according to your ways. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together. Um, And this is kind of that moment in history where through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus proves to us that he's capable of driving the car, man, and we want to give him the keys. So right now, you can just reflect on him for a minute, reflect on your previous week, ask for forgiveness for your sins. He's gracious and kind that way, and just kind of hand him back the keys and say, I want you to drive. This was a bad idea, handing the keys to someone else. I'm I'm going to let you drive. And then uh, you can just kind of reflect with him for a minute, and I'll come back up here after we've all received, and we'll we'll take it all together as a church family uh, in a show of unity. So God bless you guys. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you for your grace to forgive all of our sins. We thank you for your resurrection that empowers us to live a different life. As we leave this place, may we be absolutely committed to allowing you to drive our car, to drive the car, and to take us where you want us to go. May we follow your lead, trust your words. And always believe in your example. It's in the name of Jesus. We pray, Amen. Ten fifty nine. Nailed it. All right. So, um, absolutely nailed it. Now, now, I'm telling you right now, I will make the commitment to you, and you will make the commitment to me as you leave this place. Jesus drives the car, even during basketball games. So whatever whatever's about to happen. It happens. We, we don't invite people over to watch games with us for a reason. So <laughs> fireball offenses occur. So um, so we just, we just hang with each other, right? Um, go ahead and stand up. Hey, uh, next Sunday, uh, next Sunday's is the last week of this Jacob series. Uh, I've enjoyed it immensely, but I'm really looking forward to uh, spending uh, three weeks uh, talking about Easter and the week leading up to Easter. Um, and playing a little bit of Wordle with you guys. I've never done it, so I'm looking forward to that as well. So, uh, God bless you guys. Have a great week ahead, and we'll see you next Sunday. Praise God.